the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their horses advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. Why don't we pray together? Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts now to hear what you have to say to us. I pray that you'd help me speak your words. Give us ears to hear, Lord. And transform us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see so many of you here tonight. And we had lots and lots of fun at the Cayley last night. Um, if any of you have any ideas about socials that you'd love to do at 6 p.m., that would be fantastic. Um, I did make my kilt debut last night. Um, generally, I give it a thumbs up. Um, the sort of airiness was fantastic, but it's quite tight around the waist. So if you're going to get a kilt, guys, make sure it's big enough for the belly, because I found that it wasn't. Uh, so that's the kilt. Um, but we've had lots of fun together last night. But we've come now to a book that is very serious, and it's weighty. And we've been going through a series uh, from the book of John. Jago's been taking us through all about life in all its fullness. Jesus promises us life and life in all its fullness. And what we found is that as Jesus promises, when we trust in him, when we believe in him, the one who has died and risen again for us, we find that we're given new life, we're given new hope, we're given new purpose, we're adopted as children, we're given the hope of heaven in the here and now, life to the full. We have all these amazing promises, but what we also find, and what we see as we go through life, is that life to the full does not mean that nothing bad will happen to us. Life to the full is not the absence of suffering, but it's the presence of Jesus. And therefore, if that is the case, if life to the full is not the absence of suffering, and instead it is the presence of Jesus, then all of us at some point will come to a conflict, that will come to a tension between what we know to be true about God and then what we experience in the world around us. At some point, we'll be going, God is very, very good, and yet the world is not. So how can we navigate that tension? Because um, we can ask that question, we can experience that tension about many different things. Some of you tonight will be asking that, will be exploring that in your own lives. Some of you will be thinking that about this nation, about uh, international situations. As we play for Florida, maybe we're wrestling with that tension. And my sense is that sort of tension as we are in an age of 24-hour news and Twitter and we just see everything that goes on all the time. 
And so it's actually easier to be in that place of going, oh my goodness, overwhelmed by all that is happening, and yet trying to resolve that with the goodness of God. But this is not just true of this age. Humans have always done this. It's part of the human condition. We see it especially in Scripture. We see it in the prophets. We see it in the wisdom literature. We see it in the Psalms. And for us, we see it in the book of Habakkuk. And what Habakkuk does is he wrestles with the goodness of God and the situations he sees in his nation. And Habakkuk is just like us in this respect. He wrestles with the tension. And he looks with confusion and questions at the circumstances in the world as he looks at God. Now, Habakkuk is interesting. Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk is like other prophetic books in the sense that it is God's word brought to the people by a prophet. But also, Habakkuk is our words spoken to God. So the book of Habakkuk is actually a dialogue where Habakkuk brings his questions and God brings his reply and then Habakkuk brings his query, his, his, his burden, and then God replies again. And in it, we can see our own questions in this dialogue. And through this dialogue together for three weeks, we're going to explore the question, can we trust God? In our lives, in our nation, in our world, can we trust God? That's a big question. It's a hard question. In fact, what we're going to find is that some of the answers that we have, what answers we have, can also be hard. And yet it's so worth exploring. We don't want to be people that, don't, that uh, ignore that kind of tension, but actually pursue it and live in it. We want to be people who live by faith, not shallow Christian lives. And so therefore, we're going to ask together, can we trust God? Can we trust God? So, Habakkuk explores this, but who is he? Well, it's helpful to know he was thought to be a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. And we get a clue from the text about this because he writes about the rising power of the Babylonians and their coming invasion of Judah. And so we know, therefore, that he's living in the 7th century uh, after the reign of a chap called King Josiah. Now, King Josiah, who was king of Israel, was a good king. He had a conversion experience when he was young. He met the Lord, and therefore that shaped his whole rule and reign. So basically, he brought all kinds of reform. He tore down idols in the temple. He changed laws. And basically, the nation under King Josiah came back to God. And therefore, God blessed the nation. Things were good. But that's not the context for Habakkuk's ministry. Instead, he is under King Jehoiakim, and he reversed all the good work. And therefore, people ignored God's laws, and they fell away, but they still expected God to bless them. And gradually, a terrible decline set in. So where Habakkuk is living, he is viewing, he is wrestling with the tension of a nation that is ignoring God, that is going its own way, where the wicked are prospering and the good are not. And so... Habakkuk finds this hard. He describes it. You can read with me verses 3 and 4. He's actually describing what he goes on. He says, this is the situation. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And it's as if all the people in power are following the example of the wicked king. And they too have become perpetrators of wickedness and injustice. And so Habakkuk wrestles with this. I wonder if you've ever wrestled with something like this. You've ever wrestled with injustice. Now, one of the things I prepared for this talk and as I thought about it was that actually we have a lot to be grateful for in this country in terms of our justice system. And this came out to me as I was speaking to some friends who live and work in Greece. 
And Greece is fascinating. The police, policing system just does not work like ours does. It's run on bribes and it's run on power. And people can literally get away with murder. And so as I was talking to my friends, they were saying, basically in England, we have so much to be grateful for. There's so much that we take for granted. And we know it's not perfect, but our system of judges and courts, the right to a fair trial, our policing system, generally brings about justice. But can you imagine living in a country where that was not true? Where justice wasn't found? Where actually people could ignore the law because they knew they wouldn't be brought to bear for it? Imagine the chaos. Imagine how unsafe that would feel. Well, that is actually true of some nations around this world. But it was certainly true of where Habakkuk was. It was certainly true. He says in verse 4 that the law is paralyzed. But now, this is interesting, because Habakkuk isn't just talking about the law of the land. He's actually talking about God's law. So he's not just wrestling with a nation. He's not just wrestling with man's laws, but he's actually wrestling with God himself. There's an intensity to it. He says, your law is being trampled on. Why are you allowing people to drift away? And so, this brings up questions for the prophet. You can read with me verses 1 and 3. His questions, how long, Lord, must I call for help? but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Now I can count four questions here. There's two how long questions. How long must I call for help, but you do not listen? And then how long will I have to cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Can you hear Habakkuk's, Habakkuk's problem here isn't just that actually it's this moral deterioration, this slide away from God where the wicked prosper. In fact, his problem, the thing he is wrestling with, is he has already brought this to God. He's saying to God, I've cried out to you, I've brought this, I've got on my knees before you, and yet you don't seem to be listening. And even if you are, you're certainly not doing anything about it. And so for Habakkuk, this brings up this question, this why question, and these are questions three and four. He says, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? How long? Why? Now, since life to the full is not the absence of suffering, but is the presence of Jesus, many of us will be asking those questions, or will have asked those questions, or will ask those kind of questions throughout our lives. Now, actually, something that you see a lot in the Psalms, the psalmists wrestle with God around scenarios. How long, Lord? Why is this going on? And then, why is this happening to me, or to the people I know? And I think the why question can be particularly hard. I was asking it about six years ago, as my lovely aunt died of cancer, colon cancer in her late 40s. And it came on really quickly. They gave her a two, year, two years to live, and then it was a year, and then it was six months, and then it was two months, and then it was two weeks. And I don't know if you've ever had the chance to go and spend, some, spend time with someone who's dying. And particularly when you're spending time with someone whose body has been ravaged by the drugs that fight cancer, it can be quite shocking because... They're unrecognizable. So for us, we had time to go see my aunt. We had time to spend time with her to talk to her while she was awake. But eventually, she did die. And I remember at that time, the question that was in me was, why? Why now? Why this age? She'd, just got, she'd been married for two years. Why? God, why? Was what I wrestled with at the time. And I think for many of us, maybe you can relate to that, maybe not, hopefully not that kind of scenario, but maybe you've asked that question. 
And I feel for many of us, actually, the unanswered question in and of itself is painful. There's a scenario which hurts, and then also, because you've brought that to God, therefore there is the pain of the unanswered question. And for many of us, we think, actually, if I knew the reason for what I'm going through, then it would be bearable. The novelist Peter DeVries puts it like this. The question mark is turned like a fish hook in the human heart. So at these times, how we respond is really important. Habakkuk shows us two things. Habakkuk shows us firstly that we must confront reality. As the prophet wrestles with all that is going on around him, you know, he names it, destruction and violence are before me. He doesn't shy away from it. And he gives voice to it and he actually brings it to God. And we must do that. We must confront the reality of our situation, even if it's painful. But then also, we must pray honestly. I mean, Habakkuk is such a model of it here. He says, God, you're not listening to me, which itself is a bit of an irony, isn't it? But it's total honesty. It's raw pain. God, you are not listening. Why aren't you doing something? It is real. It is honest prayer. And, you know, we need to do that as well. We need to come before the Lord and even sometimes question the questioning, as Habakkuk does, which is to say, Lord, I've already been praying for this. Why aren't you doing something? We need to live in the tension. But also, um, particularly, let's say, as we think about situations in America, we have to call, to call out to God for our own scenarios, for the situations in our lives. We need to pray honestly. But also, we must allow ourselves to be moved enough by situations around the world, that even the ones that don't affect us. Are our hearts soft enough to be moved to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done over the nation of America, for instance, right now? Because it's so easy to be lulled into this false sense of accepting this, the status quo. And accepting that, okay, well, it doesn't really involve me. So because it doesn't, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to get on my knees. And I'm not going to intercede. This is what Habakkuk does. He is crying out not just for things happening to him, but for things happening to his nation, to his world. And we must be the same. We must bring the tension, the pain of the goodness of God and the situation we see before God. Now, but as well as confronting reality and praying honestly, we actually must be seeking and expectant of God's reply. And God certainly does reply to Habakkuk. This is the next section, verses 5 to 11. And you can read me from verse 5. God replies to Habakkuk. He says, Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told it. God tells Habakkuk to look, and he actually picks up on Habakkuk's own question, because Habakkuk asks, why do you make me look at injustice? But God replies, look, but take a wider look. Look at the nations, and not just your nation. Actually, in verse 6, he'll actually talk about the whole earth. It's as if God is saying to Habakkuk, you need a wider perspective. You need to have my perspective. And so God replies to his questioning. And I want us to note two important things about God's reply. Firstly, God is at work. We see this in verse 5. God, uh, God shows Habakkuk that he's not only listening, but actually he's working actively to the thing that he is crying out for. He says, I am going to do something. I am going to do something. But can you know about God's activity that it's not just in the future tense, but actually it is already happening? Because God says, I am raising up the Babylonians. So God says, I am at work. 
and I'm going to continue being at work to bring this situation to resolve. Habakkuk is crying out for justice, justice. And the Lord says, I'm already at work to see that happen. And can we also note, verses 6 to 11 show just how much God knows about the situation. Because he knows the Babylonians. He describes, it's God's reply, and they describe in great detail the ruthless and impetuous people. This is how the Babylonians are described. Now the Babylonians were raising up a mighty army that basically going to come and crush the Israelites. Uh, verse 8, uh, God describes their horses and cavalry, their military might. He describes their fearless attitude. Verse 10, they mock kings and they scoff at rulers, which also means they mock God and they scoff at God. But in the details here, we can also see that God knows how people feel. God knows that, as in verse 7, that the Babylonians are a feared and dreaded people. This means God sees how people perceive things. God hears and sees the pain. And God's reply to Habakkuk is to say, look, I've heard your cry, I'm already at work, and I'm going to keep working. And you wouldn't even believe it if you were told. God is at work. But also, God shows Habakkuk that he is in charge. God shows us that he has all authority. Verse 6, he replies to Habakkuk to say, I am raising up the Babylonians. This is fascinating. The Babylonian war machine, that ruthless and impetuous people, were under the sovereign power of God. So actually, God is raising up the Babylonians. He says, I am permitting this. I am allowing this. I am encouraging it. And God actually uses the Babylonians to judge his own people. Now, this might bring up two uncomfortable points for us. Firstly, God can even use pagan rulers and authorities for his own glory and his own power. Even leaders who seem so wicked can be used for the goodness of God. God is raising up the Babylonians. Ones who will cause damage and destruction and hurt and pain and suffering. God says, I'm raising them up. The God of all goodness can even use the wicked in his purposes because he's sovereign. If you want to explore this further, can I encourage you to go deeper into this book, can I encourage you to read chapters like Romans 13, where Paul talks about all those in authority are like the servants of God. That's the first uncomfortable point. The second possibly uncomfortable point for us is that God is using the Babylonians to judge his own people. God is raising up people to wipe out a nation. God is judge of all. God is judging the people of God for turning away from his law. Remember, they're under King Jehoiakim. They're turning away from God. And so, as the wicked prosper, God is judging the nation. Later on in verse 12, Habakkuk will say, you have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that quite uncomfortable. I find that quite uncomfortable. But in love, God is judge of all. What we see from this passage, um, we have to note this, both the Israelites and the Babylonians are described as wicked. Verse 4, the wicked are being raised up, and then verse 15, the Babylonians are described as a wicked foe. And over both these parties, God sits as judge. Habakkuk will say in verse 13 that you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And this is the wider picture of Scripture. 
one day, God will judge all peoples. Everyone will come before the Lord and have to give an account of their lives. And those who are in Christ will go one way, and those who are not will go another way. And I wonder if for us, if we struggle to sometimes relate the idea that God is love, but that God will judge. Do you ever find a tension in that? Does that, find, does that seem uncomfortable? God is love, the Bible says. And yet God will judge. Now, that can be uncomfortable, but can I just encourage us that we might be quite tempted to think like that, but others might not. I want to show us this perspective by considering something a guy called Miroslav Volf said. Now, he's a Croatian, and he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And as a Croatian, he had first-hand experience with the terrible violence in the Balkans. And he says this, Imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Thankfully, this will not be our experience, I hope. But what Miroslav Volf saw is that as he saw this horrendous violence, he saw a perpetuation of it, because as one party harmed the other, the others retaliated just as badly. There was an ongoing retaliation, an ongoing cycle of violence. And Miroslav Volf says, what on earth could you tell to such people to not be violent? He says, what on earth can you say to people, don't take justice into your own hands, don't respond with like? Even though, yes, your family's been killed, even though, yes, your village has been wiped out, he says, what on earth could you tell such people? And his wider point is that that cycle of retaliation, in fact, all violence and injustice will only end under the judgment of God. And it's only when we begin to see that God is just and that he is judge that we'll not take matters into our own hands. He goes on. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. God does not tolerate injustice. And Habakkuk is crying out for justice. And God says, I will have my justice. But can you see that that makes him worthy of worship? We haven't been wronged, and yet so many people have. Imagine what it is like to be one of the families of the children that have been killed this week, crying out for justice, crying out for change. And God says, I will judge all people. And because he will, we can say that he is love. We can say that he is fair. We can say that he is just. We can trust him. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. God's reply to Habakkuk is that I've heard your cry. My plans and purposes will be carried out and my justice will be had. And this is to our comfort as well because no matter what we see in our world, no matter what atrocities, terror, no matter what pain we experience, it is all under the sovereign rule and reign of God. This is how God replies to Habakkuk and he says it to us as well. I am at work. 
and I'm in charge. And God says over your life tonight that I'm at work and I'm in charge. God says over our church, God says over our city, over our nation, over our world, I'm at work and I'm in charge. Now, that might seem like foolishness. Eddie Izzard said this, if there is a God, his plan is very similar to someone not having a plan. Now that's very Eddie Izzard, if you know his work. But it's also very human. Our perspective is limited. We cannot see everything. Remember, Habakkuk says to the Lord, you know, why do you make me look at violence? And God says, look, you must have the bigger picture. Look to the nations. Look to the world. To be human is to not see everything. Um, And in the darkness of this world, it's hard to see the light of God, isn't it? Sometimes when it is so dark, it is hard to see how God's kingdom can be coming. Do you know that's also true of our sight? Do you know that if we, have don't, we don't have enough light that we actually can no longer see color? If we were to turn off all the lights and turn off all the outside lights, eventually we'd only be able to see in black and white. Maybe you can try this later. I wonder if it's the same for the way that we can see God's technicolor kingdom. In the darkness of this world, it is hard to see anything but black and white. It is hard to see how God's light can possibly be shining. And so, yes, sometimes it will seem like foolishness to trust God's work and to trust his authority because we can't see the whole picture. But our hope is in Jesus. God shows Habakkuk that he's at work and he's in charge and we see this in Jesus. God says to Habakkuk, I'll be making an end to all injustice and all violence. And in Jesus, God has come, chosen to come and suffer to pay the price for violence and injustice on the cross. And he'll come again to judge all people. God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to do something, but here I am already working. And in the same way, God says, I've already come in Christ to pay the price, and I will come again. I'm at work, and I'm in charge. Because we might say to God, God, look at this suffering, maybe in our life, this world. Why don't you do something about suffering? And God says to us, I've chosen Jesus to suffer. I've chosen to come to pay the price, to put an end one day to all suffering through my suffering servant. And we might say to God, why are you silent? Why don't you answer my cry? How long, Lord? Why? And God's reply is his eternal word, Jesus Christ. God is eloquent. God has spoken in Jesus Christ. So yes, we trust this. And in the pain of life, those two things, that might not seem to hold all the answers. That might seem foolish. It might seem like God doesn't have a plan. But as 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the wisdom of God looks like Jesus on a cross. His power is magnified in surrender. His victory is shown in what looks like defeat. His throne looks like a cross. And in Jesus, who has come and who has suffered for us, we have a hope that will never fail. That one day all injustice and all violence shall be brought to an end and shall be brought to the feet of Jesus, over whom it, he has all authority. We can have confidence in contradiction. We can have trust in the tension of life as we stand between declaring the goodness of God wrestling with the world that we see. 
we can trust in Jesus. Jesus is the yes and amen to the promises of God. As 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, it's like Jesus is the confirmation and seal of the promises of God. Jesus is God's decisive yes to all who believe. We can trust in him. So tonight, maybe this has actually brought up more questions for you than it's answered any. But for the next two more weeks, we're going to be considering this book again. But can I encourage you tonight, and as we should always, to start to put your trust in Jesus. To let your starting place as you wrestle with these things to be Jesus. Shall we pray? Can I just encourage yourself in this near stillness, near silence, just to bring yourself before the Lord. God, we thank you that you're at work. We thank you that you're in charge. That all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And I pray tonight, wherever we find ourselves, whatever we're wrestling with or not, God, I pray that we would look to you. God, I pray that you would help us trust you. God, I pray that you would stir us to pray on behalf of others. Lord, I pray that we would seek your kingdom come. And I pray that we would share your love with everyone to a broken and hurting world, God.